I love those words for all that you've done. As we come here this morning, I don't think it's been said yet. He is risen. Did, did we say it earlier? He, he is risen. Is that good news? It's great, great news. I'm going to knock one of these mics off. I wanted to uh, welcome uh, folks that are here uh, joining us as guests. Um, Sundays like today, uh, we have folks who are possibly walking into a church for the very first time, as well as folks who've been away for whatever reason and coming back. And uh, we don't take for granted that sometimes it's hard to re-engage back into church or even reconnect with God. So we want to let you know we're grateful that you're here. Okay? Yeah. We are. We are. We are. We are. We're grateful that you're here this morning. So for those of you that have come, somebody invited you, we're so glad that you're here. Um, and hopefully they'll take you out to some place delicious afterwards. <laughs> uh, my parents are here this morning. Papa Hong and Mama Hong. Uh, yeah. They, uh, <laughs> they, yeah. Many of you know, they came to the States uh, in, uh, well, when I was 10, I like to talk about that, in 1980. And they've been away for a while. They moved back to Korea about 12 years ago. And, and they're visiting um, and so they're here for a week, and they decided to come join us this morning. So we're grateful, grateful um, for them. And hopefully some of you will get a chance to say hi to them. They're sitting right next to my, my wife, I think. Uh, my dad my dad is a carbon carpy of me, except he's like a foot shorter. So <laughs> just look for an Asian dude who looks uh, like me, but is a foot shorter. Um, Today is Easter or Resurrection Sunday, and I'm always reminded on this day. I don't know if this will resonate with you. It's amazing how much we could endure when we know that there's a purpose to our struggle. Just think about it, Christian or not. Think about, think about people or human beings. Isn't it amazing? It's amazing how much we could endure difficulties and circumstances when we know that there's a purpose to our struggle. That's what hope is, is it not? Hope is that very thing that enables you and I, regardless of the impossible odds or difficult circumstances, to endure, to persevere, because we believe fundamentally that there is a purpose. To our struggle. And, and I don't know of a better time than today when Christians all around the world gather to think about what the death and the resurrection of Christ means. Uh, today I want to introduce you. For those of you that hear me preach on Easter for like years, I've never preached on this text. So you're going, oh, a new one for once. Um, I've never preached on this text. Because I want to introduce you today to two people for whom hope came late. You notice most of the resurrection accounts of the Gospels are about what happens in the morning. But I want to take you today to a story of two people who encounter resurrection hope later in the day. 
See, the thing is, for some of us, hope comes early, but for many of us, hope comes late. And for those of us for whom hope might come late, today's story is something to teach us about God and about us. By the way, throughout today, randomly, I'm going to say, Christ is risen. So I can get you to say, Christ is risen indeed, okay? Turn your Bibles with me to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24. If you're joining us for the first time, the way that uh, this guy up here, Pastor, preaches is I literally just kind of go through and walk through the text or the Bible and think out implications for us. Chapter 24 of the book of Luke, verse 13. It says, Now that same day, two of them, disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Now, these two people are part of the tiny little community that followed Jesus. And we'll see that one of them is a dude named Cleopas. Cleopas. And the Apostle John tells us that one of the women at the cross when Jesus is being crucified is the wife of a man named Cleopas. So N.T. Wright, actually, by the way, those of you that grew up maybe looking at this as two dudes walking, N.T. Wright, one of my favorite theologians, actually says that most likely this was the husband and wife. And they're trying to make sense of what had just happened. Just like most people. By the way, I love the humanity of the resurrection stories. What do I mean? We have this notion of disciples being these super spiritual people. The reality is, Jesus said for three years, what? I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. And that morning, everybody's going, he's dead. And they're confused, these two, just like everybody else. They're bewildered. But more importantly, they're skeptical. They're disbelieving. And they're afraid that Jesus really rose, just like everybody else. They're not believing. Verse 15, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked with them. I love the resurrected Jesus coming alongside and walking with, listen very carefully, doubting, skeptical, fearful disciples. Is this not a beautiful picture of grace? See, I don't know what your image of God is this morning. But I want to ask you, is he a God who meets you where you are? In your fear? In your confusion? In your disbelief? In your doubts? Or is it a God who uh, demands that you uh, get it first? Or who demands that you clean yourself up. See, this is good news because I don't know about you today, but today I'm going to be able to stand here knowing that if God asked me to meet him where he is, I'd be done. Anybody hear me this morning? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was necessary because you and I have no power in ourselves to meet him where he is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about us finding him. It's about him finding us in our fear, in our skepticism, in our doubt. Is this good news to anybody? See, I don't know about some of you, 
But I could tell you that the rest of us this morning, here's how we became a Christian. We weren't out there looking for God. We weren't out there searching for God. We weren't out there being all goody two-shoe and I need him. He came and found me. He came and sought after me. Is this, is this anybody's testimony this morning? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That if we love him, he what? Loved us first. He doesn't wait for us to come to him. And by the way, when you finally get there and go, oh, I was looking for you, you find out that he was what? Looking for you the whole time. I don't know about you, but this morning, I worship a Savior who comes to me at the moment of salvation and comes after me again and again and again and again. I'm telling you, I could only love him because he loved me first. Now, here's what that means. And I always say this every year. Here's what that means. There are people within our midst, some of you visiting, who are skeptical, who are doubtful. Maybe you don't consider yourself religious or Christian. Here's why this is important. Because the reality is the Bible tells us we don't have what it takes to muster up faith to believe. Amen? We don't. That means that even the ability to believe has been given to us by God as a gift. See, if we had the ability to muster a faith, we'd walk with the swagger, and that's not a good look. <laughs> the Bible says that even to faith believe, faith to believe has been given by God. It is by grace and grace alone. Amen? Amen? That means if you're here this morning, and if anything that's happened today is somehow stirring your soul speaking to you, do you know what that is? That is your creator God wooing you. That's your creator God speaking to you. And by the way, when that happened to people in the Bible, they didn't just turn off their brains and go, I just need to believe. They said, God, help my unbelief. I want to believe, but I can't. I want to surrender, but I can't. I want to worship you, but I don't know how. Tell him honestly. He already knows where you are. You don't have to pretend. It'll be freeing for you. So I want to encourage you this. If anybody's sitting here, but you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. Respectfully, I say it doesn't matter because I know what he has done. And he has done everything, the Bible says, to reconcile you to God in his death and resurrection. See, our sin reaches far, but good news, God's grace reaches further. God's ability to clean things up is way greater than our ability to mess things up. God's grace is so big, so expansive. That there's no place where we've been in the past, no place where we are now, or where we'll go in the future that's beyond the reach of God's grace. Church, is this good news to anybody? I pray that this will never get old. You are sitting here this morning because he came and found you and me. Verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you just a visitor to Jerusalem and don't know the things that happened there in these days? He's literally going, Where you been? You living under a rock or something? Everybody knows what's happened. We'll get to that in a moment. Luke goes to great lengths, just like all the gospel writers in the Easter accounts, to show you and me, the readers, that the resurrection of Jesus wasn't a legend, not a vision, or some made-up story, but an actual historical event. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is an actual historical event. It really happened. How does he get this across? Just one word. Cleopas. What do I mean? See, when you and I write something, anybody has to write research papers? 
When you and I write research papers, what do we do to help the readers do fact-checking on us? We write what's called footnotes. We call footnotes. Put them at the bottom so that people go, is that really true? They look at the footnotes and they check the source. It's our way of saying to people, go to the source, check it out, see if what I said isn't true. They didn't have footnotes back then. You know what they did? You put names of living eyewitnesses whose oral testimony was the basis for your account. Luke St. Cleopas is their way of going, You want to check and see if what I'm saying is true? Go and check it out. He's still alive. Ask him. All the gospel writers say, this is written 20 or 30. All the gospels are written 20 or 30 years after the event. Imagine something happened in Chicago in 1997. Let's say the Cubs won the World Series. You arrive in Chicago in 2017. Somebody goes, the Cubs won the World Series in 1997. Is that really true? How do you know? Well, it's easy. 1997, a bunch of people were walking around. They were still alive. Go ask them what happened in 1997 to see if it's true. That's exactly what Luke is doing when he writes Cleopas in this public document. This is the time, Pax Romana, when Rome rules the known world. Travel is easy. You could go from place to place. And he actually has audacity to say, If you want to know what I said is true, that Jesus is alive, go ask him. Why? This is how Christianity started. Hear me. This is how. And I, living witness, living eyewitness, said to his neighbor, I know it's nuts. I know it sounds crazy. And I know I'm the last person to believe. But I'm telling you, I saw him. He's alive. This is how Christianity started and exploded. Now, Peter, why are you being so rational on a day when we just want to feel good? Why are you being so rational on a day when we, tulips are out, cherry blossom, we just want to feel good? I'll tell you exactly why I take time to do this. Because in all of my years being a Christian, people will come and say to me, Peter, if I being a Christian, will it meet my needs? If I become a Christian, will it help me? If I become a Christian, will it help me lead a more fulfilling life? And you know what I tell them? I lovingly tell them, I respect you, but you're asking the wrong question. The right question to ask is, is it true? Did it happen? Because if it happened, it will fulfill the deepest needs of your heart and change you. Are you hearing me? If this didn't happen, Apostle Paul says, our faith is futile. Nothing matters. All of this is absolutely pointless. But if Jesus rose from the dead, the future of God has landed into a world of Satan, sin, and decay, has come in salvation, life, and hope. Don't sit there and go, will it help me? Will it mean my needs? Ask if it's true. Because if it's true, your sins could be forgiven. If it's true, you could have a relationship with God. If it's true, the Holy Spirit could come in and change you. Is that good news? That's why I'm being so rational. Is it true? Did it happen? That's the Verse 19, what things? And Jesus asked, how about Jesus of Nazareth? 
<laughs> Some of y'all with me, right? Imagine at this point, she goes, what things? And they go, you know about Jesus. Do you, you know? <laughs> to which, if I was him, I'd be like, yeah, actually, I've heard about him. <laughs> he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him, but we had hoped. I tell you what, man. That, that I could take a month on. They crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But we had hoped. If you live long enough, you know about those words, don't you? But we had been hoping. We had been hoping. After we got married, we'd be able to start a family. And the doctors told us, all tests and procedures that wasn't going to happen. We, we had been hoping that the test results would come back negative. But it showed cancer. I had been hoping that she was the one and things seemed to be going well. And then all of a sudden she decided, I've been hoping that this job, this job that I've been dreaming about all my life, and that this would. You know about those words, don't you? Of course we do. Well, what, what have they been hoping for? Verse 21, we've been hoping that he would what? Redeem Israel. See, this is why they were so discouraged with the word downcast. Here's what every good Jew thought at the time. Just to give you some context. They were Israel, right? God's people. God's chosen people. whom God had handpicked to be his representatives on earth. To be a source of hope, good, justice. This time, though, when Jesus shows up, there's no glory in Israel. Just suffering. Remember, up to, they had been under one oppressive tyrant after another. First in Egypt. Then Babylon, Persia, Syria, Greece, and now Rome. This is, they don't even have their own government. They're under oppression. They've lost hope spiritually, politically, military. What Israel hoped for, do you remember, was a Messiah who would come and deliver them from the hands of the filthy Romans, from their oppressors, and again restore the glory of Israel one more time. And what would this Messiah be like? He would be like they thought, someone in the line of Moses, the prophet etched in their memory as the guy who came and delivered Israel from the most powerful nation of the time, Egypt. How how do you know that? Do Do you know that this imagery, right, it's filled with Moses' imagery, what the disciple says. See, when he says he was a prophet, Jesus was, that's right out of Deuteronomy chapter 18, 15. The Lord your God, this is Moses speaking now, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And, and, and when they say he was mighty in word and deed before God and before others, that's first, first century Judaism's way of talking about actually Moses. Acts chapter 7, verse 22. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in what? In word and deed. See, in, in their eyes, Jesus was the expected Messiah. Line of Moses would bring about deliverance nation of Israel. 
And they had all these hopes in Jesus and following him. Nice prime cabinet positions in his administration. Things were going extremely well. And then that happened. And by the way, you need to know, the reason why they were so dejected. See, the cross was Rome's way of saying to the whole world, you are not the Messiah. You will not rebel against us. The cross was the way that Rome told everybody in the world to see that some rebel, some would-be Messiah, would be taken care of. Now check this out. In their eyes, deliverance couldn't possibly come through the cross. In their eyes, redemption couldn't possibly come to the cross or does it or does it so the reason why this was so unfathomable to them and why it's unfathomable to many of us listen very carefully is because we underestimate the depth of our need for deliverance We underestimate the depth of our need for deliverance. What do I mean? Political deliverance would be great, but it would not be enough. Economic deliverance, economic freedom would be great for Israel, but it would not be enough. Military deliverance would be great, but it would not be enough. What they needed deliverance from, and what you and I so desperately need deliverance from this morning, is what the Bible calls sin. We underestimate the devastation and the consequences and the destruction of sin. I was talking to Todd on Friday, and we both said, the reason why we don't like Good Friday is because it faces us with the reality of how devastating, destructive, toxic sin is. The word redeem that Cleopas uses right here literally meant to release from slavery. And listen carefully. Cleopas thinks that the only delivery he needs is political. The only deliverance that they need is economic or military. He thinks, in other words, that the major problem in his life are circumstances. If I could just have different political circumstances, economic circumstances, then everything will be all right. Church family, I got to tell you this morning, 2017, let's not make the same mistake they made. Let's not make the salvation that our world needs goes deeper than politics, economics, and military intervention. Can I get an amen? Jesus Christ had to come because the deliverance we need is not just political, economic, and otherwise. What we need deliverance from is what the Bible calls slavery to sin. (laughs) Slavery to sin. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 8.33. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. I'll tell you right now. See, in our church, we don't talk about sinners doing bad things. That's easy. Sin, the Bible describes. I'm going right off a sword and Sin, the Bible describes, 
is idolatry. It's putting something else as being more important to our identity, to our self-worth, and to our happiness than God. It's taking good things and making them into ultimate things. And it's that sin from which all other sins flow. Will you consider addiction with me for a second? Consider addiction with me for a second. I know this is strong language, but if you have an emptiness in your life, and the high you take from the drug, it could be anything, food, alcohol, hard drugs, gambling, it doesn't matter. It, 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 the high that you get from it helps you cope with that sense of emptiness and meaninglessness. And for a while, that helps. But eventually, there's what's called the tolerance factor. See, after a while, the same amount that once delivered the high to deal with the sense of emptiness no longer delivers it. And you need to get more of it and more of it to get the same high that you once had before. Anybody familiar with what I'm talking about? See, and eventually what happens is this. The very thing that you used to relieve the stress now begins to cause the stress. The thing that you use to, you eat to relieve the stress, but the eating now begins to cause the stress. You drink to relieve the stress, but now the drinking itself is the cause of stress. You gamble a little bit just to relieve the stress. Now the gambling itself causes the stress. And when the thing that you once used to relieve the stress begins to cause the stress, you're trapped. You can't live without it. Very definition of what? Addiction. Friends, church family, all sin is addiction. What do I mean? If Jesus is not your master, You and I will look to something else to give us a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose and fulfillment. You can't help it. We are hardwired for it. It could be anything right now. It could be your children. It could be your marriage. It could be your career. It could be ministry. It could be sex. It could be anything. You and I are hardwired for it. Now, here's the crazy thing. You ready? The worst thing that could happen is actually for us to get that thing that we want. Why? Because you get it and you realize what? It doesn't deliver the high that you thought it would. And you need more and more of it, which now comes in the form of you have to have it. And when you don't have it or someone threatens it, anxious, worry, envy, jealousy, bitterness, you're trapped. I've got good news this morning. Jesus Christ didn't just come to forgive us of our sins. He came to set us free. Is that good news to anybody? Did you hear what I just said? Jesus Christ didn't come just to go forgive. He came to set us free. On Good Friday, he died to pay the penalty for our sins. But on that Sunday, the grave was empty saying, I came to set you free from the power of sin. And listen to this, Galatians 5. If you are free in Christ, then you are free indeed. You 
and I were created by God and for God. That means that there is nothing out there that will be able to fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts. And the reason why Christ came was to take our affections and turn it towards him so that we will no longer put our affections on meaningless, lifeless dead things that will enslave us. He came to set us free. Is this good news? Easter is about the fact that you and I could live in freedom because of Christ. Don't look to change in circumstances to solve your problems. What you need, what I need is not a change of circumstances. It's a change of hearts. Take our hearts and turn them towards you. Maybe somebody walked in here this morning and you're going, I'm just in church because somebody broke up with me and I need some help to get through this. I want you to consider that the very thing that's strangling you might be that relationship itself. And until you can come and go, until Jesus becomes more important than this, it doesn't matter what relationships I go through. It'll trap me and enslave me. Are you here this morning saying, I'm a little discouraged, I need some help. Or I'm enslaved and I need freedom. In addition, some of our women amazed us. What I'm about to do a little bit might be a little bit hard for ladies, but hang in there, okay? Because I have to be faithful to what the text says. (sighs) They went to the tomb early in the morning, that is the women, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen visions of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went out to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. This is one of the most powerful evidences for the truthfulness of the resurrection. What do I mean? It's based on the testimony of women. You want to know what kind of a time and age this is? There's a guy named Celsus. Celsus, Celsus. He's a Greek philosopher, lived in the second century. He was one of the most fierce opponents of Christianity. Do you know what one of his most ardent arguments for why Christianity was bogus was? Here's Celsus in his own words. One of the reasons why we know that the accounts of the resurrection can't be true is because the accounts are based on the testimony of women. Wait for it. Next. And we all know that women are hysterical. (laughs) I'm just a messenger. Do you know what culture, this this is a time and age in which women's testimony are not allowed in court. A hundred women could eyewitness a murder. And if there's not one single dude who's able to verify it, you could go free. Luke, John, Mark, Matthew, these gospels are written as in some ways apologetics to show the world that, that this was true and that they wanted you to believe it. Now, why in the world would anybody in their right mind put something in a historical document that everybody goes, if you put that, we might not believe it. Do you know why? Because it happened. That's the only reason why Luke would put it in there. 
Okay, enough of that. Okay, let's move on. Verse 25. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Can I just, can we just all, have you ever, Dan Rodolfo, I'm talking, Dan, have you ever done this? You, you, you thought for sure that you knew exactly what was happening. And then you realized, I didn't know anything at all. Now I'm asking the wisest man in here. So if he says amen, then the rest of us fall. No, I'm serious. Did, have you ever been in that? We're like, I know what this is. I know exactly what this is. And then you realize, I didn't know. Oh, I'll come back to that in like two minutes. Jesus says, did not the Christ have to suffer? Thank you, Jesus. Have to suffer. These things. And then enter glory. Church, they totally miss Jesus because they're looking for a Messiah who would set them free from suffering. And it turns out Jesus was a Messiah who would set them free by suffering. It turns out that they thought that the cross was the defeat of Jesus by Rome. It turns out the cross was the defeat of Satan, sin, and death by Jesus. It turns out that the cross was the defeat. Not, the, the cross was not the defeat of hope, but that the cross was the defining answer to all of our hope. You know what that means? Everybody look up here. So be careful how you make sense of your life now. Be careful. I'm so sure that... Be careful how you make sense. Buki, are you hearing me? You know what I notice about the gospel writers? They all mention that Jesus still has the scars. Everybody notices, right? My kids, why, Daddy, why does Jesus... In his glorified body. Do you know why? Do you know why Jesus has the scars? Because his sorrows are a part of his glory. I know it's hard. Because you're going, I know exactly what... His sorrows, part of his glory. That means that Jesus carries upon himself the visible marks of his human life. In other words, Jesus, listen, remembers his suffering. Jesus, do you know what that means? Is anybody suffering right now? Do you know that when you pray to Jesus, you pray to someone who says, me too. Are there two more powerful words in the English language than someone saying? The other thing, and I wish I would have been there. The disciples, last time they saw the scars, they saw the nails going through those hands. They saw the nails going through those feet. And they sure, they were absolutely positive that it was ruining their lives. Our lives are ruined. Our lives are ruined. Our lives are ruined. He's dying on a cross. And it turns out that those very same scars were the very things Jesus would use to save their lives. It's through them that salvation came. It's through them that salvation came. 
See, see, how strong would you be if you believed? If we believe? So sometimes the very thing that we think is ruining our lives might be the very thing that God uses to save us. I want to say it again. How strong would we be if you and I actually believe that in the hands of the Redeemer, moments of apparent defeat become moments of victory and grace? How strong would you be if you actually believed that the one who took the most dark and disastrous moment in history used the very same thing to once and for all rid of all the dark and disastrous things that sin had done to earth? Be careful how you make sense of your life. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and began to give it to them. Verse 31, everybody read this with me, ready? Then their eyes were open and they recognized him. For a good first century Jew, they were taught something called the principle of first mention. You know what that is? That is every time they saw something in scripture, they were trained to ask, well, when did that first appear? Where do we first hear that? Do you remember? The first time in the Bible we see those recorded and their eyes were open. Before we get there, this is the history of the world. Some of you are like, oh yes! You know what I'm going. This is the history of the world as God describes it. God created a world without evil and justice, sin and death. God gives to his prized creation the gift, the gift to be in relationship with him. But God says to them, You could do it my way, living under my rule and reign and experience shalom, flourishing and peace, us and me and you, you to each other and all of creation. But what do they do? They take the fruit, which was some other way than God's way. And sin is unleashed into all of world and every fabric of society unravels. And the Bible says in Genesis 3 that the first thing that happens to man and woman is what? Genesis 3, 7. Then their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. In disobedience, sin enters the world, destroys everything. And their eyes are opened to see hate, sin, death, evil, injustice first time their eyes were opened in Luke 24 the second time their eyes are opened their eyes are opened to see a new reality a new way of being the kingdom of God is here their eyes are opened to see that the restoration project that God had been building from Genesis 3 culminates in Jesus Christ in his death, in his resurrection. Does this blow anybody else away? I love the symmetry of Scripture when Scripture is... By the way, when were their eyes opened? Not the Bible study with Jesus. 
Can you imagine Bible study with Jesus? He opened the scriptures. He goes, let me show you. Can you imagine that Bible study? For like three hours, by the way. It's a seven-mile walk. It's a long walk. Imagine that Bible study. That's not when their eyes were opened. When were their eyes opened? Check this out. When he's at the table, he breaks bread. Why? Because just two nights earlier, that they're sitting at a table. And Jesus tells the story of the Exodus, where God says to the Israelites, I want you to make unleavened bread, get some wine, kill a lamb. By the way, when you pick the lamb, make sure you pick a spotless lamb in the prime of his life, a male lamb, and kill it without the breaking of its bones, and eat it. And Passover night, Jesus Christ, we talked about some Friday, becomes the Lamb of God, who, by the way, is in the prime of his life, spotless, and the gospel writers say, killed without the breaking of his bones. And as he distributes the bread, the Bible says, everything comes together for them. The kingdom of God. The end of Satan, sin, and death. Restoration of all of creation. Verse 32. Then he disappeared from their sight. I love the humor and the reality of scriptures. Verse 32. Then they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while, we, while he talked with us on the road and he opened the scriptures to us. And look at verse 33. Then they got up, returned at once to Jerusalem and they told everybody, it's true, not it'll help you, not it'll fulfill you. What? Say it with me. It's true. The Lord has risen. Can I just tell you? I'm almost done. They've been walking seven miles. Seven miles. They've been up all night. All night at the crucifixion. They just almost arrived. And now they have to walk seven miles. By the way, I don't think they walked back. I think they what? I think they ran back. Do you know that this is what happens when a heart gets ignited by the gospel? Do you know that this is exactly what happens when a heart gets ignited? You don't have to tell them, run back and tell somebody. When your heart gets gripped by the gospel and your eyes are open to see the kingdom, the restoration of God has begun in Jesus. Nobody has to yell at you and tell you to go. You're on mission by Christ. The story begins with them being blind. Anybody been blind once? It ends with them seeing clearly. Anybody now clearly see? The story begins with them discouraged and disillusionment. Anybody here this morning knows what it's like to be discouraged and disillusioned without Christ. The story ends with joy and excitement and going back to tell as many people as they can. It ends, thank you Jesus, with mission. We are made right with God so that the world may be right. Resurrection hope 
I don't know what other churches are preaching, but I'm going to preach this. Resurrection means we don't sit here and go, well, I'm glad I've got assurance to heaven. No. Resurrection means you have an assignment with your name on it. Resurrection isn't about how many people can we populate heaven with. Resurrection is about how do we transform and remake earth now in Jesus' name. Resurrection hope reminds us that God is very interested in what happens on earth for everybody, not just in heaven for some of God's people. God plants us in particular places at this time in history and wants to work through us so that you and I can go, he has risen, he has risen, he has risen. I'm going to tell somebody. I do this every Easter. And so today is no exception. I speak to two groups of people. Some of you are sitting in here this morning and you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here going, I'd love to believe that. I'd love to believe that. That that sounds like an amazing thing. I'm just not the believing type. I want to gently and firmly and respectfully say, actually, you have tremendous faith. We all in this room have incredible amount of faith. In what? In ourselves. See, you might not be a Christian, but I guarantee you, every single one of us in this room, even Christians actually, are operating from this mindset, tremendous faith. I have confidence and faith in myself. Things are going to go as I planned them. Until God goes, I don't think so. I'm in control. Until your child says, I don't think so. We do. So I want to ask you this morning. I'm almost done. Listen, I want to ask you, if you're not, could it be that it's not a, a faith-believing issue? Could it be a commitment issue? Maybe you're sitting here this morning, you've been wrestling with God, and maybe for you, it's not, I don't know if I can believe. Maybe for you, the issue is, I don't know if I can surrender my life to Jesus. I don't know if I can let go and surrender my life. I got good news for you. You ready? We already know. We already know you're not very good at managing your life. How do, I, how do you know that, Peter? Because I ain't very good at managing my life, and there's no difference between you and me. So the reality is, maybe it's a freeing thing to go, I'm not very good at managing my life. I see what my life looks like when I try to manage it, and I want to entrust my life to somebody who is way more capable than I will ever be. So if you are here this morning, and you're not a Christian, believer, religious type, I want to ask you this morning, Is it a commitment issue? And if it is, what would it be like for you? We're going to all do this, by the way, not just you. To say this morning, the cross and the resurrection means that my life is not my own. It's been bought at a price. And it belongs to you. What would it be like for you to say, I let go and release to the one who is more competent than I will ever be? new Christians out there. Do you think you were going to come in here and go, ah, feel good sermon on Easter. The whole eyes being opened. That's really cool, Peter. Thank you for tying that. That's really, no, no. Why are you, do you know what this means? If Jesus really is risen, he makes the claim of all claims. You know what that is? He is not just Savior, but he is Lord. He is King. See, Easter challenges with you and me with this. You're just walking around going, I'm a Christian, but you know, as far as what I do with my life, my body, my money, my marriage, it's me. It's a... 
when we become a Christian, we don't invite Jesus into our kingdom. Hello, somebody. We invite, Jesus invites us to participate in his kingdom. Easter challenge with you and me. Is he your Lord? Is he really Lord who is risen? What does your life say? Sissy, come on up. We're going to pray now. We're going to pray now. This morning, whether you're a Christian or not, the commitment piece, the challenge of the gospel is both, if he is risen and Lord, I surrender all. And if he is risen and Lord, I'm on mission to tell and live it as if it's true. Let me say that again. Easter challenge, if he is risen, if he is who he says he is, I surrender all. And I'm on mission. There is a kingdom assignment for me. I am sent. I am sent. That's my identity. How are you doing? How am I doing? On this resurrection Sunday. Are you surrendered? Are you on mission? Are you surrendered? Are you on mission? If you're not a Christian, can I invite you, as I invite all of us this morning? Maybe the first time you've ever done it, we do it right along with you. Say, God, it's not a, a faith issue. It's not a belief issue. It's a commitment issue. Help me. I want to surrender. I want to worship you, but I'm afraid. Help me. Help me. choir comes up and gets ready to close if you are somebody that needs prayer and wants somebody just to talk to every single Sunday this area behind the stage behind me where the cross is it's a sacred space for people to pray with and to pray for someone please take advantage of that we will be here for you and with you you particularly if you're somebody who came this morning and maybe you utter that prayer God I don't consider myself a Christian or religious but I I want to surrender I want to worship you please come and talk to us
Let us know how we can pray with and pray for you.